That's a clown question, bro. Hi, what's up, Bunny? So I'm gonna kick some dirt. He gets on base. Just a bit outside. I'm not the type of player that's gonna be Johnny Hustle. And if you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. And welcome to Above Replacement Radio. We're talking baseball kind of whenever. I'm your host, Chris Gianta. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, this is this is a first in the history series. We have a guest on this episode. Yes, we do. Yeah, one of our journalism professors uh, from Springfield College taught our intro to journalism class and biggest Tom Seaver fan we know. And you know, I'm sure there's some uh, some maybe Springfield alumni that might be interested in this interview. If you just want to get to or the current interview, students, uh, yeah, current students as well. If you want to get to that interview, uh, that's the timestamp is in the description uh, for anyone just interested in that because I know there's a lot of Springfield College people that might be interested in that. Um, but anyway, yeah, we're talking about Tom Seaver who. Uh, was the greatest pitcher of his era and uh, the greatest Met of all time. Um, And yeah, we're going to get into his life and career, starting with how he grew up. So Tom Seaver was born in Fresno, California, under the name George Thomas Seaver. Obviously, he ended up going by his middle name. And he started Little League at the age of nine, uh, like most people, probably a little early, in fact. And within for three years, he pitched a perfect game in that league. So he was he was perfect on the mound before he could even get to the majors and before he could even get scouts at his games, in fact. Uh, he was doing it just for fun, throwing perfect games. And later on, he pitched for Fresno High School, which had already produced some successful major league talent with uh, Jim Maloney, who had a 37.5 B-War, and Dick Ellsworth with a 20.1 B-War. And he made an impression on another uh, future MLB pitcher who was high school teammates with Seaver, uh, who was Dick Selma, who said, quote, even in high school, Tom was, th- Tom was a thinking pitcher. Even in high school, Tom was a thinking pitcher, remembered Selma. The later, the later teammate, uh, Selma was a leader, later teammate of Seaver's on the Mets. And uh, he also said, quote, he knew how to set up a hitter by working on the corners of the plate and the batter would usually pop the ball for an easy out. And after graduating high school, he registered at Fresno City College and he played baseball there. And now we get into what his uh, college life was because it's kind of interesting in how uh, Tom Seaver ended up his route to uh, professional baseball was a pretty interesting one. So Seaver was at Fresno City College and while he was at Fresno City, uh, Fresno City College, he put in time in the Marines. And in his second year at Fresno City College, he won 11 consecutive games and set numerous strikeout records uh, for that particular college. And this caught the attention of many professional and college scouts, as you know, it obviously would. He's you know setting school records for uh, for such a you know, at such a high level. And Rod Dedeau, I believe is how it's pronounced, the head coach of University of Southern California, who had won the NCAA championship in 1958, 1961, and 1965, asked Tom Seaver to join the Trojans 
uh, for his junior year. And uh, in order for Seaver to earn that scholarship at USC, he played a season of, of semi-professional baseball in Alaska. Uh, and I guess, you know, he was able to make enough of an impression. You know, I don't know how the word would get back from Alaska, how he actually did, but he ended up doing just fine. So in Tom Seaver's junior year, he was at USC and at USC, he was still spectacular. He went 10 and two with a two, four, seven ERA and a hundred strikeouts in 100 innings pitched. And after the season, he was drafted in the 10th round of the first ever MLB draft of 1965 by the Los Angeles Dodgers. This is our third, third uh, history alumni that we've talked about who was drafted in the first ever draft. And Seaver uh, asked for a $50,000 signing bonus from the Dodgers. And that is something that they were not willing to give at the time. And the MLB, you know, cause this was sort of the infancy stage of the amateur draft. Uh, the MLB added a secondary phase to the draft in January, which was made for players who were drafted in the summer, but did not sign like what Seaver did with the Dodgers. So ultimately in that second phase, Seaver was drafted by the Atlanta Braves, which was a team that he liked. Uh, he grew up liking Hank Aaron and uh, also Eddie Matthews, who is a uh, history alum above replacement radio history alum. And uh, Seaver actually ended up signing with the Braves in late February. But unfortunately for the Braves, USC had played had uh, already played a handful of games uh, for their 1966 season before they signed Seaver and teams could not sign a high school or college player after their high school or college season had begun. So in March, Seaver's contract, because of this rule, uh, Seaver's contract with the Braves was voided by MLB commissioner William Eckert. So with the Braves unable to sign him, the MLB put together a lottery that included teams that would match the Braves' uh, contract offer for Tom Seaver. And those teams ended up being the Cleveland Indians, Philadelphia Phillies, and the New York Mets. And uh, the Mets ended up winning that lottery for Tom Seaver's rights. And that put Tom Seaver into the New York Mets organization. So by a random number generator, Tom Seaver is now in the New York Mets minor league system. And in 1966, he was in AAA, putting up a 3.13 ERA, 8.1 strikeouts per nine, and 2.8 walks per nine in 210 innings pitched. And uh, Jacksonville manager Solly Hemus was overwhelmed by uh, his pupils' talent and and pose, poise and poise, insisting that that his quote 35-year-old head attached to a 21-year-old's body uh, was ready for prime time. And Earl Weaver, while managing the Orioles uh, affiliate in Rochester, agreed with Hemus for visiting from the visiting dugout, where he said, quote, It was apparent in Tom Seaver's pro debut that he was ready for the majors. He had an excellent fastball and slider, and he put them and he put them precisely where he wanted to, in and out on the black of the plate, mostly knee high. After Jacksonville beat us, I phoned the then general manager, Harry Dalton, 
and said that Seaver was going to be sensational and the Orioles could give up a piece of the franchise and do well to get him. So he's already, uh, you know, got GMs on the phone about him. And uh, after spring training of 1967, Seaver was added to the Mets MLB roster. So a quick road to the majors from the minors for Tom Seaver. Only one year of uh, minor league play required, which makes sense because of not only Seaver's skill, but also where the Mets were as a franchise at this time. Uh, so we are in. So to title the first two years of his career, it's sort of the first era of Tom Seaver. Seaver's the immediate face of the franchise. You can tell uh, with this rookie season that he is already the best player in their brief history. So Seaver made his MLB debut on April 13th, 1967. Uh, that is where he threw five and a third in his pitch, allowed two runs and struck out eight in a no decision. And in his third start, he threw 10 innings, allowed one run that was unearned and allowed four hits and struck out five and got the win. And it is one of two starts in the history of game logs within a pitcher's first three career games with 10 plus innings pitched, less than five hits allowed, no earned runs allowed, and five plus strikeouts. The other start was by Dick Selma, Seaver's Fresno High teammate, and at this point, Mets teammate. This was the guy uh, that we quoted earlier in the episode uh, who was talking about Seaver. So pretty, pretty ironic uh, that this was able to happen. That is, that is a how about that on multiple levels. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, usually, usually I never say it is one of two stars, but when I saw, when I saw Dick Selma was the other guy, it's like, Oh my God, this was a this full was circle. Ironic. This is pretty crazy. And like, yeah, it's we, not even we've just come full circle and it's five minutes into the episode. Exactly. Yeah. We <laughs> could end it right now if we, if we wanted to, but we're not, we're not going to do that. We have a, we only have about uh, 115 minutes left Yeah, uh, with this episode. So uh, throughout the first half, uh, Tom Seaver put up a 2.65 ERA in 129 total innings pitch, and he earned a spot on the National League All-Star roster. And when the National League took the lead in the top of the 15th, Seaver pitched a bottom, a scoreless bottom of the 15th and earned the save. So immediately he was making an impact for his league, not only his team. And he ended up with a 2.76 ERA, 3.16 FIP, and 122 ERA plus in 251 innings pitched in that year of 1967. And he finished eighth in innings pitched and ninth in ERA plus. He also finished fifth in B-War, and Seaver ended up winning Rookie of the Year, and he finished second, uh, 22nd in the MVP vote. And Seaver's 1967 had 40% more B-War than the next best season by a Mets player up to this point in the franchise's history. And it is the only season by a pitcher in their first season with 250-plus innings pitched, 170-plus strikeouts, and less than 225 hits allowed. How about that? Um, and, you know, you could tell why 
he was so far and a far above and beyond anyone else's Mets season. The Mets were just not were just not good at all. The Mets went 61 and 101 and finished last in the National League in 1967. So now we head into 1968, which of course we all know was the year of the pitcher and Tom Seaver did his part. He finished 5th in innings pitched with a 278 fourth in fielding independent pitching with a 2.22, seventh in ERA with a 2.20, and fifth in ERA plus with a 137. So this guy, his second season in the majors, the year of the pitcher, what does he do? He puts up an ERA plus above 135. That is very impressive. Second in B-War and fourth in F-War. I'm assuming, I think I can probably guess who we lost to in B-War that year. Uh, Yeah, yeah, National League pitcher, you know, probably, probably a guy like in the, in the central or something, or I guess yeah. The well, there was, I mean. there was no central back then. Yeah. But you know, if it was, but, you today, know, yeah, yeah. like the, you know, geographically speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like the, the Midwest. Midwest. Yeah. Um, uh, Robert Gibson or something like that. I think it was old Bobby G or, or something. Yeah. Like that. One of those guys. And Tom Seaver put up the only season by a pitcher in their first two seasons in the modern era. That is since 1900 with 270 plus innings pitched and a four plus K to walk ratio. This was also the only season by a pitcher in their first two seasons with 270 plus innings pitched 6.4 plus strikeouts per nine and less than 1.6 walks per nine. And lastly, it is the only season by a pitcher in their first two seasons with 200-plus strikeouts, less than 50 walks, and five-plus shutouts. So Seaver was doing his part, but as for the Mets, they weren't following his lead. They went 73-89 and and finished ninth in the National League. And now we head into uh, 1969. We'll give our, our uh, you know, lay perspective of it. Uh, first, and then we'll introduce you to introduce uh, the audience to Mr. Marty Dobrow. Uh, so, you know the the story of 1969 with Tom Seaver. You know it, it definitely started at the beginning, and we'll get into that with the uh, Marty Dobrow uh, guest segment. But on July 9th, uh, Tom Seaver had retired his first 25 batters almost perfect his speed and control are brilliant ernie banks is just one victim of his 11 strikeouts he gets flawless support from his teammates before 59,083 fans a record turnout in shea stadium when he strikes out al spangler he's pitched eight full innings of scoreless hitless baseball Nancy Seaver holds back her emotions as a huge crowd watches every pitch. The first Cub up in the ninth. Randy Hutley tries a spoiling butt, but Seaver throws him out. Two outs to go to a perfect game. Jim Qualls, a rookie outfielder, is up. A clean hit to left center field, and there goes the perfect game. But there's a standing ovation for Seaver by 59,000 fans. It's still a near-perfect game when Don Kessinger flies out to end it. And it's a vital victory for the Mets. Back-to-back wins shake up the Cubs. 
Tom Seaver comes very close to uh, getting a perfect game. Definitely the first one in, in Mets history, but falls just short, but, you know, gets the win and the shutout. And uh, Tom Seaver heading into an August 31st doubleheader. Uh, the Mets were 75 and 53 and were four games back of those Cubs for the National League East lead. Note this is also the first uh, year of the divisional era where there's divisions now. And from that point forward, from that August 31st doubleheader on, Seaver started seven games, completed all of them, won all of them, shut out the opponent in three of them, and allowed a total of five runs in 63 innings pitched with none of those runs coming off of a home run. And the Mets in this span went 25 and nine and ended up winning the National League East with a 162 record. They went from 73 wins to 100. And Seaver ended up with a 2.21 ERA, 3.11 FIP, and 165 ERA plus in 273 and a third innings pitched. And he finished fourth in ERA and second in ERA plus. And Seaver led the league in wins with 25. He finished fifth in B war, but you know, because of those wins with that 25 and seven record on the winning Mets, Tom Seaver won the Cy Young and uh, also Seaver tied Willie McCovey with 11 first place MVP votes, which were the, you know, most of that year. And he, unfortunately for him, ended up with 22 less total vote points and finished second in the MVP vote. And uh, Seaver, you know, with his 67, 68, and 69, Seaver remains the only pitcher in the live ball era to have six plus B war in each of his first three seasons. So now the Mets are officially in the postseason for their first time ever. So in the first game in NLCS history, uh, Tom Seaver was going at it against Phil Necro and he allowed five runs. Seaver allowed five runs in seven innings, but he ended up getting the win uh, as the Mets offense picked him up and they get a nine to five victory over the Braves and the Mets went on to sweep the Braves. So then in game one of the world series, uh, Seaver allowed four runs in five innings and ended up getting the loss in a four to one defeat to the Orioles and the Mets uh, by to the surprise of many won games two and three of that series, putting putting them ahead, uh, putting them ahead two games to one. And in game four, Seaver shut out the Orioles for the first inning, then allowed two singles and a game tying sacrifice fly in the ninth inning. So uh, it was a one to one game now. So the game went into extras and Tom Seaver continued pitching and the leadoff hitter of the 10th reached on an error from the third baseman. After the next hitter popped out, the third batter singled and the fourth batter flew out and moved a runner from second to third. And that left runners on the corners and two outs in a 
one to one game in the top of the tenth. One two delivery. Breaking hit struck him out. So we'll be going to the bottom of the tenth. I got number six receiver. No runs, two hits, no errors, two left. In the middle of the 10th inning, the score is the New York Mets won, the Baltimore Orioles won. So Tom Seaver gets out of that jam and gives his chance, gives his team a better time, a better chance at winning the game in the bottom of the inning. And the Mets ended up walking it off in the bottom of the 10th. And the next day, or the next game, not sure if it was next day, they won game five, making Tom Seaver a World Series champion. And that is where we hand over the keys to Mr. Marty Dobr- our our segment with Mr. Marty Dobrow. And we are here with our sixth ever guest of above replacement radio first ever guest under the new name above replacement radio we're here with our uh journalism professor and uh the biggest tom siever fan we know uh mr marty dobrow uh marty how are you doing doing great chris daniel thank you guys so much for joining me love love what you guys are doing on this podcast love the name and obviously, uh, the passion for our greatest game is uh, something we all share. So right. great to be here. Um, so we'll get right into the Tom Seaver talk, you know, and, you know, I'm not that familiar with uh, with the, I guess, Mets fandom of yours growing up. So, like, what are your earliest memories of the Mets? Because I imagine that as Seaver was coming up, that was kind of the time you were getting into baseball. So, and Seaver was, you could tell like in his rookie year, just looking back at it, he was the first great Met. And it was pretty, it was pretty clear. It was pretty clear that that was happening like in his rookie year. So was he kind of just like a, a diamond in the rough for the Mets even early on? Yeah, he was, uh, he was the, the find. He was the franchise. He was the guy who, turned the Mets from uh, kind of lovable losers into champions and into, I think, one of the great stories in, in baseball history because, that you know, the history of the Mets, uh, you know, the Brooklyn Dodgers left for Los Angeles, the New York Giants left for San Francisco, and suddenly New York, which had been a, you know, three teams with the Yankees, of course, uh, was down to, to just one. Uh, for a few years. And then in 1962, the Mets uh, launched their franchise. Uh, I don't remember that. I was born in December of 1960. But uh, the I know the history and the history is that in 62, they were, you know, a historically terrible team. I think they did not play the full 162. There were two games that were rained out and not made up, if I'm correct. I think there were 40 and 120. Comically bad. The you know all sorts of crazy things happened. Like the first run ever scored against the Mets in the first game was on a a balk when the pitcher dropped the ball in the middle of his motion, and then it just kind of went down from there. I mean, they were just terrible, terrible baseball, and so. 
you know, as I'm growing up and just beginning to get into it, I think I went to my first game. I have a ticket stub from 65, so I would have been four years old. Don't really remember that. But I do remember Seaver's rookie year, which was 67. And the Mets were still terrible. They'd been in last place every single year. The There was not divisional play yet in Major League Baseball. So it was uh, in National League. They had expanded in 62 at the Mets and the Astros, who were then known as the Houston Colt 45s. And uh, But in 67, Seaver came to the Mets, and he had initially – been drafted by somebody else. I think it was the Braves. There was some weird thing in the contract where, so there was a lottery system like three teams put in, they pulled the Mets name out of the hat. And pretty instantly the Mets had this, this player who was this fierce competitor, this vibrant personality, uh, someone who just had a real high expectation of winning and, so even though the team was still bad and still finished in last place yet again, I think he was like 16 and 13 or something like that is his first year. And um, with a good ERA and high strikeout total and, you know, suddenly there was some reason to believe. And then he had another excellent similar year in 68. And then of course, 69 uh, was the year, the, the miracle Mets year. So that's a year that coincided with my journey kind of perfectly because I was really getting into baseball. I was eight years old that year. Um, it was my first year of Little League. Uh, I was a pitcher. I was a right-handed pitcher. And here was this guy who was a right-handed pitcher. You know, I grew up on Long Island and not far, you know, got to go to some of those games, went to the, the first game of the 69 season opening day. Mets played against the Montreal Expos, an expansion team. It's the first year of divisional players, just two divisions, National League East and National League West. And the Mets had what should have been a gimme of a game, again, you know, first game ever against the Expos. They got Seaver on the mound. He gives up a couple runs in the first inning, doesn't pitch well. And the Mets wind up losing on opening day in the first ever game for the Expos, 11 to 10. And it certainly doesn't seem like that's going to be a year but it wound up being a year for the ages. Happy to talk more about it if you guys want to hear more about 69. It's, it's pretty, I, I remember some of those games with unbelievable vividness, even though they've, you know, they've now happened over 50 years ago. Uh, yeah, actually, um, one thing I'd uh, probably like to get into is, you know, they were facing, when they went into the World Series, they were facing the Orioles who, you know, the Mets had an impressive record of 162. The Orioles, meanwhile, had 109 wins in that in that uh, series. So and I, you know, I actually watched uh, some of the pregame for game four of the World Series. It's on YouTube. Um, and they were talking about how the Orioles were like heavy, heavy favorites. So, you know, was there a lot of doubt like coming into that series from, you know, a Mets perspective? So I will answer that question. It's a good question. But let me just rewind the tape since we've gone, you know, from opening day right now to the World Series. And there's obviously a whole journey of a season. And I'll just try to condense that into a few highlights and then get bring you to the World Series. So the Mets, as you say, they won 100 games that year, which was staggering because they'd always been a terrible team. As I mentioned, they had finished in last place 
62, 63, 64, 65, 66, 67. And then I think in 68, which was the last year of no divisional play, the Mets surged all the way from 10th place in a 10-team league to ninth place, right? So they've never come close to a winning record. And here they go into 69, and suddenly they win 100 games. And Seaver wins 25 of those games. And there's, some of those games are just absolutely, as I said, indelible in my mind. I, there's a, what's known as the almost perfect game or the imperfect game. I think it was July 8th or 9th, 69. I remember it was an evening game against the Cubs, who were then the top team in the Cubs, oddly, were in the National League East. And uh, they were the favorites. They had some really terrific players. They were in first place for most of the year. But the Mets began making up some ground. And in this game in July, Seaver was pitching against the Cubs. And I was able to negotiate with my parents staying up late that night and watch the game. And he was just mowing people down, you know, one, two, three in the first, in the second, in the third, in the fourth, on and it's going. And it's just like hopping fastball, big cutting curveball, Mets surging ahead. It's just, you know, and goes on, you know, perfect game through five innings, through six, through seven, through eight, you know, 24 up. 24 down and it's going to the ninth inning and my little eight-year-old heart is hammering hammering away and uh the ninth inning begins i think randy hundley led off if i remember correctly as the catcher there have been subsequent hundleys as you probably know who've been catchers i think he was the first and uh he got him out i forget how but so it's now two outs to go and up to the plate steps a light hitting outfielder by the name of Jimmy Qualls, Q-U-A-L-L-S. And you can look him up in terms of his major league career. He had a, something like 41 major league hits. Very forgettable career. It's a hey, very memorable number of hits, Tom Seaver, 41. Yeah, I, I think it might have been, maybe I'm conflating it, but it's, it's, it's somewhere about, about that. You can, you can I'm find looking it. it up right now. All right. Find, let me know what the total is when you find Jim it. Jim Qualls. Yeah, there he is. Um, played for the Cubs, had 30, 31 career hits. 31. Uh, 30 of them were in the 1969 season where he had a 608 OPS, OPS for a 61 OPS plus. So well below average hitter. Well below average hitter. And Seaver is just, you know, on cruise control. And then, but one of those hits, one of those 31 career hits, left-handed batter, he hits this line drive the other way to left center field, Cleon Jones from left field converging one way, Tommy Agee from center field converging the other way, and the ball landing on the soft green outfield. And as it fell, so fell my little heart because it was just devastating. And, he, you know, that was the only guy to reach base. And they won the game. I think it was like 6 nothing. And it just goes on. I mean, amazing things happen. The Mets wound up clinching the division title on September 24th. I mean, it's ridiculous, my recall for this, because I couldn't tell you, you know, what I had for lunch yesterday. But uh, the, um, you know, September 24th, they play against the Cardinals. They win six to nothing. Uh, Seaver doesn't pitch that day. Gary Gentry, a rookie, pitches. But it's I my dad got tickets to that game as well. And my dad still alive uh, and it's always been this sort of like real, you know, button up, button down, whatever the phrase is, you know, by the books sort of guy. 
but he really kind of got into it. He was an old Brooklyn Dodgers fan, and he allowed me as an eight-year-old kid to join the celebration on the field after that they clinched the division. And so right near that mound where you see Tom Seaver in your background, there were all these clumps of turf, and I grabbed one of them, and it was sat in a paper moldering in a paper bag in my room for many years to come. Uh, you know, just great. They went into the playoffs against the Braves. Weirdly, the Braves were in the National League West. I don't know how they were thinking the geography there, but, uh, you know, that was the, Bra the Braves of the great Henry Aaron, who just passed away, and, you know, who was Tom Seaver's all-time hero, actually, growing up. And um, the Mets won that series, and they go up, you know, to – bring you in long-winded Dobrow fashion to your question, Chris. Uh, here we are, the World Series against the Baltimore Orioles. Now we think of, you know, modern fans think of the Orioles as a, you know, an afterthought, not a, a team that has mostly not been good for the last 20 years or so, had a brief stretch. Um, but they were mighty powerful team back then. They had a, you know, great starting pitching, some, you know, Frank Robinson and Brooks Robinson and Boog Powell and local guy from Pittsfield, Mass, as their shortstop, Mark Belanger, and uh, wasn't much of a hitter, but very good shortstop. They were a great team and heavy favorites. And in the first game of the World Series, Seaver pitched and lost. And the Orioles won that game. And then it got the Mets came back and won game two and won game three. And then this brings us to the YouTube that you watched, Chris, about. And I have to see this. I didn't know that this existed. The pregame for game four, you say, is on, uh, on YouTube. Yeah, it was it was funny because um, two players that we've covered on the series were were uh, analysts, Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle. Yeah, it was, uh, it was NBC Sports where they were talking about how um, like they were saying like, oh, the Orioles won game one. And, you know, we, we expected this after, you know, beating Seaver. This would be a pretty easy series for the yep. Orioles. But here we are two days later and, you know, the Mets are uh, the Mets are ahead, you know, not behind Seaver, but behind, I believe, Jerry uh, Kuzman and Gary, um, Gary Gentry, Gary Gentry, and Nolan Ryan came in for like a seven-out save yeah. at uh, yeah. at a point who we've also covered. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of shocking to the baseball world, uh, in, you know, to uh, to put it that way. Yeah, it was, I mean, it just was like this absurd year of, you know, I mean, you think about what's like going on in 1969. I mean, it's just like all of this tumultuous stuff around Vietnam and we're into the first year of the Nixon presidency and there's social unrest and there's, you know, there's uh, Woodstock, you know, drug culture. I mean, there's all of this stuff that's just kind of it's all this turmoil in the country. But in the midst of all this, you know, the Mets, the lovable, you know, always terrible Mets just became this great story and they just kept winning against all odds. And so on some level, we just sort of expected them to, to somehow keep that going. And so here after that first loss, they won the next two games and that brings us to game four. Now, again, I have a very personal story about game four because uh, it's a game that I remember probably as well as any baseball game in my memory and there are several baseball games in my memory but that was I, I probably got over the in the in 1969 I maybe went to about 
I don't know, six or seven games. I mean, we went to that opening day game when they lost to the Expos. We went to the September 24th game when I got the uh, clump of sod. Uh, maybe two or three other regular season games. My dad, God love him, somehow, you know, back then, and maybe tickets were a little more accessible, but he was able to get tickets to game four of 1969. And we have now time for a visual aid. Oh, I don't know that this is a visual, a, a visual podcast or not, but we are going to have a um, collage that you see part of made by my mother and myself about the Mets 69 season when I was eight years old. And you can probably see it's not in good focus, but those two World Series tickets there with Mr. Matt on them. Oh, yeah. And if I were to read to you the um, – let's see what we can find out. Uh, section 38, row V. Um, I want to just, just take this over. I'm going to disappear from the screen for a second. I want to see if I can find the price of these tickets. So it's just going to be laughably low. But I have to put this under the light. Chris, what's the over-under? Uh, over-under for – the price of tickets, section yeah. 38. Um, I'm going to say... Uh, We're terrible at over-unders, by the way. Five, $5.99. <laughs> That's a pretty good guess. Okay. $8. $8. $8. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And um, so row V, section 38, what does that mean? That means the very, very top row of the stadium with a better view of Flushing Bay than of what's happening at the field binoculars, but what a thrill to be there. And Tom Seaver pitching against the Orioles. And my dad has always had this theory and it's, it's, uh, you know, I think it's an interesting theory that game four is always the most important game in a seven game series that, you know, if it's, if it's three uh, Oh, obviously it's a chance to close it out. If it's two one, it's either going to give the team that's behind momentum, uh, and make it a three-game series, or it's going to give a pretty decisive advantage to the team with a 2-1 lead. I don't know. You could make arguments for game one, for any game. They're all important. But this game was this really taut, tight, tense game, and Seaver was on his game, was pitching brilliantly. 57,000 fans was the largest crowd I'd ever seen, you know, largest mass of humanity I'd ever encountered. And the Mets were ahead, I believe it was one nothing, going, I think, to the ninth. Yeah, it was the top of the ninth. Top of the ninth. And Seaver's still in. And there is, uh, they get, I think the situation is like runners on maybe first and third. And you'll have to check the details. First, first and third. Are you talking what? about? A very good play in right field. Iran Swoboda, exactly. Yeah. So, so I think you can check it. I mean, you guys have the access to call this up, but I'm, I'm what I'm remembering is maybe inaccurately, first and third, one out. Maybe there's nobody out. Um, but the Orioles are are you know really threatening, and it's like very tense. And Brooks Robinson, you know, great player you know, known for his amazing defense at third base, which was just phenomenal, but also a really good hitter. And he hits this screaming line drive out to right center field. And 
from where I'm sitting, I have a good perspective on this. I mean, this ball just seems, this is splitting the outfielders and it's gonna to roll to the wall. This is a, a triple in all likelihood. Um, and Ron Swoboda, Rocky Ron Swoboda, you know, not a tremendously successful player in his career, but a long time Met, gets this unbelievable jump on the ball. I mean, he just reads it off the bat perfectly and is just sprinting out towards right, the right center field gap. And he does this headlong dive backhand at full extension. I believe that under the circumstance, I mean, the catch itself has got to be one of the greatest catches in World Series history. I know we've got the famous Willie Mays, Vic Wirtz over his shoulder catch. I mean, a number of amazing catches. I think this one is right there with any of them. And under the circumstances, it was just staggering because if that ball gets through with him diving, I mean, it, especially with him diving, I think we're at least a triple, maybe an inside the park home run. You know, triple makes it a 2-1 game. Orioles, in all likelihood, winning that game. And then we know that we have to go back to ball. The Mets are going to have to go back to Baltimore. The momentum turns. Somehow he comes up with this ball. You know, comes up throwing to the plate. No chance, but he got, you know, sacrifice fly, ties the game. Just staggering. And then in the 10th inning of the game, the Mets have... I believe it's a, it's a runner on second base. Again, you'll have to check the details, but I think they might've pinch hit for Seaver in the bottom of the 10th. I don't think the Mets had, there were any relief pitchers. I think Seaver went the whole way. They did not. And so he did pitch a full 10 innings? 10 innings. Yeah. Did the, he pulled the Jack Morris. Yeah, pulled the Jack Morris. It's good, good reference. Um, and uh, so the Mets have the runner on second base. I think they put in a pinch runner. I think it was Rod Gaspar. And, up to the plate steps a might have been the pinch hitter for Seaver. I believe it was, was JC Martin. That is correct. Okay. And so JC Martin was this light hitting, left handed hitting catcher, Joseph Clifton Martin, I think it stands for. And he, with a runner on second base and nobody out, old school baseball, light hitter, he is trying to bunt him to third base. And, uh, you know, a play that maybe today we wouldn't would not see, but then we did see it. And the the pitcher for the Orioles was a left-hander, Pete Rickert. Jumped on the ball, it was a really good bunt. Runner's going to get to third base, and Rickert swivels and throws, and all of a sudden I see the ball caroming out to right field, and Rod Gaspar, I believe it was Rod Gaspar, coming around the plate to score, going absolutely, you know. I'm a mile from the plate, but I'm just so excited. And so the Mets win two to one and are up three games to one. And it's a long time down the escalators and, you know, one game away from winning the world series and eight years old and anything seems possible. My first year of little league. And surely my fate is that I am going to one day be on the mound at Chase Stadium myself. I'm not going to wind up being a professor at Springfield College. I mean, we know what's happening, right? So this is just destiny. And I am in the car with my father and we're listening to the post game. And back then, you know, replay was, uh, you didn't have like every pitch could be replayed. And, but they were looking at the replay of that. And 
the replay showed pretty clearly that J.C. Martin was out of the baseline, was running inside that 45-foot line, was on the grass, and was, you know, the angle that Pete Rickard had to throw the ball to first base was really restricted. And they could very easily and probably should have called interference. And so the announcers, even though they were Mets announcers, were just saying that they got, they really caught a major break here. And I am thinking in my mind to, you know, eight years old, like I've just seen the greatest game for me. And I'm just asking my father probably 30 separate times in different ways, are they going to have to replay the game? Is it, are they going to take it back? You know, is it going to be overruled? Um, they're just so disturbed that this precious thing might be taken away. But of course, uh, that was not the case. And uh, the Mets won, prevailed in that game and then prevailed the next game, uh, game five behind Jerry Kuzman and uh, won the World Series. And so let's now complete the sequence of this amazing sort of 69 Seaver story. And so we'll, we'll go back to our visual aid of the, uh, this collage, okay? So here's the collage and uh, you know, it's not, I'm sorry, I'm in kind of a darker room so you can't see this really well, but I'm in third grade you know, a few weeks later and the Mets are cashing in you know, they're celebrities. This is an unbelievable win. You know, just a staggering achievement. Everybody's darlings. And in the 1969 version of this, they were, you know, everybody wanted to give them, you know, have them appear at various events. And Tom Seaver became a pitchman for this product called Bragi, B-R-A-G-G-I, Cologne. So there I am at eight years old and I'm suddenly like a big fan of cologne, right? Not Bartolo cologne, but Brazil cologne. Yep. And uh, so like, what is this? Why is this a, a deal? Well, the, the deal is that the um, Seaver had a few promotional events that he did for, you know, to get whatever money Brazil cologne was paying him. And one of them was to do this appearance at this local department uh, what's called a department store. We don't have those around very much anymore. There used to be a lot, like big clothing stores mostly. And there was one called Abraham and Strauss in Manhasset, New York, um, which is the next town over from where I grew up, right near where Paul Tifo, Tifo grew, grew up as well. And um, we read that Tom Seaver is gonna be at ANS. And I'm in third grade and my mother earning first ballot induction in the Mother's Hall of Fame, says, Unanimous. Okay, I will pull you out of school early so you can go meet your hero. Pretty cool, yes? Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, so uh, you know, to my joy and to the considerable consternation and envy of my third grade classmates, I go marching out of school early because this thing was happening at like one o'clock or something. And we get there. I insisted to my mother that we wanted to be there early. And we got there early. And there was this line. I have no idea how many people, but it's probably a few hundred people. I was the very first person online. I was so excited. And we're waiting, 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 waiting. And then suddenly there he was 
is Tom Seaver. And I had brought with me this, uh, this collage and I didn't want to really, but I wanted to be there. I wanted, I was ready to hang out there talking to Tom Seaver for like 20 hours if I could, but of course I probably had a minute. And he, I hope we can see this, you know, all these years later, but if you see carefully, there is some writing there. And it's actually pretty clear, although maybe not so clear on the Zoom, but I'll read it to you. It says, to Martin, which is what they called me back then, to Martin, best wishes, and you have made a number one poster. Tom Seaver. There it is. There it is. So I've, you know, here, I'm not a big, like, fanboy kind of, you know, I mean, it sounds like it on this podcast because we're talking about my guy and he just died this year and, you know, there's all that. So it's near and dear to my heart. And there's not, you know, there are a lot of people you could interview me about and I would be of no help. But Tom Seaver is clearly my guy. And uh, at the end of that, after he signed this, and I just, again, didn't want to relinquish my place in line. So last part of this long story is this, is before leaving, I kind of, you know, I'm like way down here, he's way up there. And I just motioned him down and he leaned over and I whispered in his ear these immortal words. When I grow up, I want to be just like you. Now, it obviously didn't quite happen that way. You know, my own uh, pitching career did not uh, get farther than about 10th grade. And I was shipped off to the outfield. And, you know, that was the end of my playing days was high school baseball. But uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, the Seaver memory is near and dear. And, uh, you know, it's clearly my favorite player of all time. Um, what a story. Yeah, that is, that's definitely the, the best personal story we've had uh, here in, uh, in 89 quick, episodes. Real quick, I wanted to, um, just very briefly, like, what was the New York, what was the scene like in New York baseball fandom, like, around the early 60s, uh, when, you know, it was kind of just the Yankees and the Mets were this very up and coming team? And how much did the culture around it really change? once Seaver, you know, came up because he was contributing to the team very, very immediately in his career. Yeah. And so he, yeah, he came up in 67. And so in the, the like in the early sixties, the Yankees were still good, right. You know, still like Mantle Maris and some world series appearances, but by later in the sixties, the Yankees were not very good. And the Mets briefly, I mean, most of the time, most of the Mets entire existence, they've been in the shadow of the Yankees and the Yankees have been, you know, historically the more prominent team, the better team, almost every year, but certainly there was this brief period when the Yankees were sort of in a lull and the Mets during the Seaver years of, you know, you know, 67, as I said, he arrived, you know, 69, they won the championship. You know, they were very good. The next few years, they got back to the world series in 73 should have won. They lost in seven games to the A's. Um, you know, they, they were, and so I think that the New York baseball world, I mean, the Mets were really the darlings of it briefly. But then obviously that, you know, that shifted, you know, Seaver was traded off to the Reds a day that uh, I remember with Gall and, uh, you know, the Yankees reemerged and George Steinbrenner came in and began loading up, you know, that, you know, those players, the Reggie Jackson and Catfish Hunter and, 
that whole crew. And the Yankees, again, became, you know, the dominant team in New York. Um, and yet, you know, we go from sort of the highs of, you know, Seaver with the Mets to the lows, but something I found interesting in uh, my research of Tom Seaver was the falling out with Tom Seaver and the Mets, because, you know, it, it actually kind of ties into, you know, us being, you know, journalism students and, you know, uh, you know, Seaver and the team president were having a bad relationship. Seaver wanted more money. He ended up getting a contract that he did not enjoy. And then at some point, the team president and this writer by the name of Dick Young in the Daily News um, starts to, you know, there starts to be some uh, parallel opinions between him and the team president. And he basically dedicates a column to bashing you know, the, the Mets darling, Tom Seaver, you know, for, for whatever motive, what was kind of the, you know, was it very public, not like very public in, you know, sort of the war of like Dick Young and the Mets team president against Tom Seaver? Was that like an ongoing thing during 1977? Yeah, I, I think it was. And it's, you know, I mean, I was sort of, you know, I was by that point, I was like 16, I guess. And so I was certainly still following it and still a Mets fan and remember being devastated when they dealt Seaver away and certainly have read about it subsequently. But, you, you know, it's a I got to have to say this fantastic research on your part, Chris, because that's you have recreated it exactly as it happened. And so there was this sort of alliance uh, between this prominent sports writer, Dick Young, who just really, you know, sort of allied with, with Don, Don Grant, I think the guy's name was the, uh, yeah. and, and uh, you know, they, they just really turned on Seaver. And that was something that was galling. And it's, I think it just didn't work. They, the, I think it poisoned the relationship with the fan base for many years to come. It was not, you know, I think it didn't really regenerate until the, you know, the mid eighties is the, you know, the whole Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry era. And the, you know, that wild team that won it all in 86. That's another story altogether with 86. Uh, interestingly enough with Seavers last year, and he was with the Red Sox with the Mets played in the world series and almost played against the Mets. Um, but yeah, that was a very, um, yeah, it was a bad ending. And then they, you know, they tried to right the ship years later. They brought Seaver back. Um, and that would have been, I think, in 83. Yep. And uh, so in 83, when Seaver was, you know, definitely on the back end of his career, but uh, they brought him back and it was the thought was he was going to finish his career with the Mets and that was a nice like healing. And I remember I did go, that was my senior year of college and uh, with a good friend of mine, John Chattanover with whom I have a big Mets history. Uh, we were both students at Wesleyan University in Connecticut and got tickets to go to opening day and saw Seaver pitch against the Phillies. Uh, strikeout Pete Rose, who was then with the Phillies to open the, start the game and Mets won. And, it seemed like it was going to have a really good ending with the Mets and Seaver, but again, the Mets sort of blew it and did not protect him, I think. And the White Sox picked him up in a free agency thing. He spent a couple of years there and then one with the Red Sox. So the Mets ultimately, I mean, their management, I think, botched this. Uh, you know, I think Seaver, 
is, uh, you know, even with my obvious deep alliance to him, coloring my, my view to a significant degree, I think you could say almost any fan would tell you, only any baseball historian would tell you, like, who's the greatest Met of them all? It's Tom Seaver. I mean, he just clearly was the defining part of the franchise. He was, you know, a combination of, you know, just a tremendously talented, very bright, hugely competitive, had this great, ridiculous laugh that was so fun to listen to in interviews because he had this sort of like boyish love of things. And um, there's just something so appealing about the way that he went about his business. And you want, you know, I mean, the word hero is a word that we, we don't even say very much anymore because it seems almost naive. I think we've, we've come to realize that everybody has their flaws that are, you know, the people that we look up to, you know, will disappoint us at times. And uh, so we've, you know, adopted phrases like a role model instead of a hero because it seems so naive. But Seaver to me really was a hero. And uh, I, you know, I kind of really carried that through, honestly, even beyond his career. I remember there's a, a funny story that I can share with you from when he, Seaver was uh, inducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame. So, um, and you guys have the uh, research there. So what, what year was that? I'm trying to recall the- 92. I remember um, up until Ken Griffey Jr., Tom Seaver had the highest voting percentage. Right. Um, I believe it was 98.3, I think. That's very, very high percentage. That's 98.8 uh, in 1992. 92. Okay. So let's, let's talk about that. So this is still like ancient history for you guys, 1992. So before you're around here, but you guys are, I just have to say again, you guys are awesome. I just love your passion for what you're doing here and your, your clear knowledge of baseball. Your, your love of it is so clear. Uh, what you've done in this podcast is just great and uh, really proud of what you guys are doing. I think it's, it's, it's tremendous. Thank um, you. So yeah, Seaver in the Hall of Fame. So 92. So I am at that point in my life, you know, I am now 31 years old and I am a sports writer for a local newspaper here in Western Massachusetts, the Daily Hampshire Gazette. And I'm mostly covering, you know, local things. I'm covering high school sports, uh, a little bit of college sports. I was just getting the UMass basketball beat, which was so exciting because they were about to really soar under John Calipari. And, but I'm mostly, you know, I'm, I'm covering stuff that's local. And um, I know that Seaver's being inducted to, into the Hall of Fame, and that's in Cooperstown. That's, you know, three and a half hours away or so. And, hour away uh, from me. Was that? Hour away from me. Hour away from you, so that's a good location, uh, and it's a great, great place to be. And you know, actually, a very good uh, down the road, a really good internship for you guys to consider. The, the uh, Hall of Fame is a really good internship, and one that you guys might look at during. So it's a paid internship, very competitive, but I think you each should go for it. Um, I just needed to be there for this induction. I really want, and I wanted to cover it. And so I knew that my newspaper, a small newspaper, was not going to, you know, it wasn't a local story for a paper in Northampton, Mass. But I said, look, I'll, I'll, you know, you don't have to pay me for this. I just want to write this story. And so my friend, John Chattanova, who had, you know, we'd gone to this Seavers return and we had subsequently, we had gone actually to uh, game six the, of the 86 World Series, the fan Bill Buckner, Mookie Wilson game. 
And um, we convene again in Cooperstown in 1992. Now, it's also an interesting moment in newspaper history because back then, the Daily Hampshire Gazette was one of the last um, of a dying breed of what were called afternoon newspapers that printed at like noon or so. And as opposed to mo what most newspapers were becoming, and now almost every newspaper is a morning newspaper that's just available early in the morning. What did that mean? As a writer, it meant that if you really wanted to, you know, you could stay up really late uh, to, to work, tinker on a story. And you guys know me that I kind of like writing and I, I want stories to be good. And I certainly wanted this story to be good because this was, I was getting to write about my hero. And so I, I go to the induction, I hear Seaver's speech and I, John Chattanooga and I were, were, we are, we couldn't stay at the main hotel there. It's called the Otisaga. It's really expensive main media hotel. So we are way out. It's like some bed and breakfast, like 30 miles out from Cooperstown, probably closer to your home, Daniel. And, um, but I, I stayed up, I don't know, like 3.30 in the morning or something, just really crafting the story. Also, I was doing it, you know, most of the newspaper coverage that I did at that point, I would go into the office and type on their desktop computers. I didn't think I even had my own laptop computer, but I used one of the office's ones. And it was this ancient model, and you can Google this, it's the Radio Shack TRS-80. And the Radio Shack TRS-80 had this little screen about maybe an inch and a half above the keyboard. That, so you could only see about five or six lines of type. But, and the way that you sent stories back then is that you didn't email stories as you would now or text stories or, um, or even fax stories. You use these things that were called couplers. And what couplers were like these big like suction cup things that attached to the phone line and you sent it over the phone line, kind of like a fax, I guess. I hadn't really done this because I always typed at the office. All right. So I'm up till 3.30 or 4 in the morning. I sleep maybe two or three hours. And then I go in to Cooperstown to the main media hotel, the Otisaka. And I go to the press room there where I thought I would just send the story. I felt really good about the story. I go in there and nobody's up because they were all sending their story the night before, morning papers. Nobody's there to help me. I tried to arrange things off the phone. It wasn't working. I asked at the main desk, they didn't know. But I still have a few hours. Story's not due until like 10 in the morning. And I just, you know, thought I just had to find a phone and I'll start walking around Cooperstown a little bit. And I come, I think it was like to some other little mini hotel and I find I convinced someone to let me use the phone there and I set up these couplers and put it into the Radio Shot TRS-80 and press the button and it's giving all these little beeps and it's not sending. Clock is ticking. You know, 8.30, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock deadline, 9.15, I go to another place, try to send, it's not working. I'm panicked. But, oh no, I've done all this for this, this story on Tom Seaver. And so I called my editor, Jim Degnan. I said, Jim, I can't get this to send. What should I do? And he said, you've got some time. I tell you what, why don't you just dictate it 
to the secretary, you know, you have time, she can do it and we'll just, we'll just get it in. So I'm relieved. So I am, I am dictating this story very, very slowly. I am spelling out any word that I think could conceivably be misspelled. Get through the story. I have her read it back to me. It sounds good. I feel incredibly relieved. There's no, at this stage, 1992, it's still, I can't like look up the story online yet. It's that's still a few years away. I drive home, have this great experience. I'm feeling good about it. I'm very underslept, but I go into the office to pick up copies of the newspaper to see this column that I wrote about my hero, Tom Seaver. And what do I see? I see that the two descriptions that I use in 1969 of Tom Seaver winning the Cy Young Award, and then of him being a three-time Cy Young Award winner, I see the spelling of Cy Young as S-Y Young. I see your, your head drop, Chris, because you understand what this is like as a journalist. Because let's face it, if you have one mention of Cy Young where it's misspelled, you could think typo, right? You'd be maybe forgiving of the writer that like, oh, that's too bad you know, bad keystroke, pretty good story. But two identical misspellings of Cy Young, and anyone reading this is going to be thinking, this guy doesn't know jack about baseball, right? It just so invalidated the whole thing. So it was, that was the, you know, that's my Seaver Hall of Fame story. But all that said, you know, Admired the guy, respected the guy, was so saddened when, you know, read about his dementia. And then, you know, as when he passed, uh, you know, during this, this year, this terrible year of loss, 2020, uh, you know, that was a very, very hard loss. Uh, but great player, great person, and a very important person to me. Yeah, that's got to be pretty terrible when you, when you have, extent, you know, obviously extensive knowledge about a guy but two, two mistakes might have just discredited all of that to a, yeah. a broad audience. You spelled, you spelled 50% of the letters wrong in Psy. Yeah. Yeah, it just, was, was just not a good feeling because, you know, as I said to you guys back in uh, Intro to Journalism class that, you know, obviously mistakes happen in journalism, but we really want to minimize them because, and we want to always check out the spellings of names. I and mean, I think I said to you guys, like, first one of the first days in journalism like even if somebody tells you that their name is joe smith like you know 999 times out of a thousand that's going to be j-o-e-s-m-i-t-h but one time out of a thousand it might be j-o or it might be s-m-y-t-h-e and that one time you know maybe that's you know like the guy's grandmother is di is dying this is you know she really wants to see the story about her grandson in the paper and you're the guy who spelled it wrong so yeah, those those misspelled Cy Youngs will uh, will live live it, with me always. It it happens like you know I'm I'm writing for a, for a blog right now and I've seen plenty of names spelled. I had a a friend of mine uh, wrote a Hall of Fame ballot and uh, Roger Clemens was spelled C L E M O N S. Yep. I was like no 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 that's not how it's spelled. Yeah, like yeah, four different uh, times. So yeah, so. Uh, we would like to thank you very much for uh, giving us your personal experience with 
the great uh, Tom Terrific. It's uh, a pleasure that you're the first first guest of the history series. We usually do it alone, but we figured we had to. You know, you're the biggest Tom Seaver fan we know. So uh, a pleasure. And uh, thank you for being on the program. Guys, the pleasure was mine. It's, uh, as I, I mentioned, I really respect uh, and applaud you for what, what you're doing. I think it's a terrific podcast and uh, really look forward to hearing further episodes down the road. And that, and that was the interview or the uh, segment. I don't know if you could call it an interview, but he did, uh, he did, give most of the substance uh, he to might be talk. like the human baseball reference for the 1969 Mets and just for Tom Seaver's entire career like I was when he was going into that you know like some of the details of that game for I was on baseball reference every single detail he had off the top of his head correct yeah and he went he he like off the top of his head remembered like uh there was the almost perfect game which is July 8th or 9th it was July 9th um yeah he he completely and yeah, he got the, he talked about how, like, you know, he was facing the Braves, a team that he had admired growing up, like mm-hmm. all the stuff that, you know, I had to go to, you know, Society of American Baseball Research. Society for American Baseball Research. Society for American Baseball Research. Learned, we learned this week, we've been saying it wrong the whole time. I was like, well, we got to go back and redo every team, every player history episode. Yes. I have to, I have to re-record and be like, society for american baseball research they they really they threw us a curveball there yeah i mean like 99 times out of 100 that's like it's of but yeah i've never heard the the four for the um for the acronym but yeah uh just a great that was a great uh conversation we had it was with mr marty dobrow and we probably got a little more into his career but now we get into the prime of tom Seaver's career where he's becoming the best he's clearly becoming the best pitcher in baseball this is from this is a, a six-year span from 1970 to 1975 where he's leading the league in strikeouts and wins above replacement uh you know strikeouts per nine you know he's really ramping up the strikeouts you can really tell and you know his fips going down and and, and all that he's really becoming more dominant uh, in this era. So on April 22nd of 1970, Tom Seaver pitched a two hit complete game with 19 strikeouts and two walks. And this remains one of just two games in the history of game logs that goes since 1901 with 19 plus strikeouts, less than three hits allowed and less than three walks. The other one, Kerry Woods, 20 strikeout game in 1998. And on May 15th, just less than a month later, he threw a one-hit, 15-strikeout shutout with three walks. And he ended up finishing fourth in innings pitched on the season with 290 and two-thirds, second in fielding independent pitching with a 2.53, and he led the league in strikeouts with 283, Ks per nine with 8.8, ERA with a 2.82, and ERA plus with a 143. This gave him fifth in B-War and third in F-War. It is also... Uh, it also gave him seventh in the Cy Young vote and 29th in the MVP vote. This remains the only season by a pitcher in their first four seasons career-wise with 280-plus strikeouts and less than 250 hits allowed, as well as less than 85 walks. It is also the only 
uh, season by a pitcher in their first four seasons with 290 plus innings pitched, 8.7 plus strikeouts per nine. The Mets went 83 and 79 this season, over 500, but not enough as they finished third in the National League East. Uh, later on, later on, an 83 and 79 record becomes respectable in the National League East, but uh, not in 1970. But as we go on with Thomas Seaver, 1971, this is sort of his feature season, but uh, it gets kind of muddled down by. Uh, by a man who we've also covered in the history series. Um, so in 1971, and I guess the argument could be 71 or 73, which was better, but this is one of his great seasons. Uh, Seaver through August 1st of 1971 uh, had a very good 2.26 ERA through 179 and a third innings pitch. That's spectacular, but not that spectacular when you compare it to his final 12 starts where he completed 10 of those 12 starts and put up a 0.93 ERA and Seaver ended up finish ended up finishing third in innings pitch with a 286 with 286 and a third innings pitch and he led the league in strikeouts with 289 whip with a 0.95 Strikeouts per nine with 9.1, FIP with a 1.93, ERA with a 1.76, and ERA plus with a 194. And Seaver also led the league in B War and finished second in F War. And he ended up finishing second in the Cy Young vote and ninth in the MVP vote. And in this 1971 season, he had five games with a game score of 90 or better, which is tied with Nolan Ryan's 1989 and Sandy Koufax's 1965 for the most such games in a season. And it is also the only season in the live ball era with 280 plus strikeouts, an ERA of less than 1.8 and a FIP of less than two. It is also the only season in baseball history with 280 plus strikeouts, 210 or fewer hits allowed, less than 70 walks, and 20 plus complete games. And his 1971 is also the only season in baseball history with 280 plus, uh, 280 plus innings pitched, nine plus strikeouts per nine, and an ERA plus of 190 or better. And the Mets once again went 83 and 79 and once again finished third in the National League East. As a team, such a, a mirror season from what they saw before in 1970. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty wild. So now we go into 1972, not as eventful, but still very efficient. He put up a 292 ERA, a 258 FIP, and a 115 ERA plus in 262 innings pitched. This gave him 7th in innings pitched and 6th in FIP. He led the league in strikeouts per 9 with 8.6, and he got 7th in B-War and 5th in F-War. And he, he finished 5th in the Cy Young vote, 25th in the MVP vote, but unfortunately the Mets went 83-73. and 73. Uh, They played a few less games, and they finished 3rd in the National League East. Yeah, uh, 
a weird uh, a weird strike that took away eight games from Yeah, that's right. The seventy two strike, the forgotten one. Yeah, just uh just a little little mini strike. And yeah, that's um if you're ever wondering why some teams only played hundred fifty four games in nineteen seventy two, there was just a little little baby strike. Um who knows what could have happened with those extra eight games. Um but uh, Mets win 83 games for their third consecutive season anyway. And now we go on to 1973, uh, where the Mets actually kind of were on par with what they were doing, but the rest of the National League East was not on par with what they were doing. So Seaver himself in 1973 finished third in innings pitch with 290, and uh, that was one of the only categories where he didn't lead the league. He led the league in complete games with 18, hits per nine with 6.8, strikeouts with 251, whip with a 0.98, strikeouts per nine with a 7.8, strikeout to walk ratio with a 3.9, FIP with a 2.57, ERA with a 2.08, and ERA plus with a 175. And that resulted in him leading the league in both B war and F war. And this resulted in him winning his second ever Cy Young and finishing eighth in the MVP vote. And Seaver's three seasons with 250 plus innings pitched, 6.5 plus strikeouts per nine, and an ERA plus of 165 or better up to this point remained the most by a pitcher through their first seven seasons. And Seaver is also the only pitcher in the live ball era to have 250 plus innings pitched and an ERA plus of 115 or better in each of his first seven seasons. And his 51.8 career B war up to this point remains the most by a pitcher in the live ball era in their first seven seasons. And the Mets. Uh, like we were saying, they went 82 and 79, but with a with a crazy turn of events, they were able to win the National League East and move on to their second postseason appearance. And in Game One of the NLCS, uh, with one man on and two men out in the second inning, uh, Tom Seaver looked to provide some some help for himself. Eddie Ose, the walking man when he was with the Washington Senators, coaching at third. Roy McMillan, a brilliant defensive infielder, is coaching at first. Texas boy. There's a fly ball. That may drop in. It does. It's going to the fence. It's going to score Bud Harrelson. And the Mets take the lead, one to nothing, on Tom Seaver's double to left center. Here to be a breaking ball that hung high and inside. Seaver just tomahawked it, a big bad pitch out of the strike zone, and with the speed that Harrelson has and a good jump off first, he scored. So the bottom of the order hurt Billingham. He walked the number eight batter with two down, nobody on, and then gave up a double to Tom Seaver. And the so Tom Seaver gets in on the offensive action and gets himself a nice playoff RBI uh, to put the to put the Mets on top. And Seaver also, you know, he needed to provide off offense for himself because he was facing a very tall task 
with the big red machine, as you will see. Geronimo is the tenth strikeout victim for Tom Seaver. One ball, two strikes. Strike three, 11 strikeouts for Seaver. When you're ahead of the hitter with the stuff Seaver has, you're in command. The 3-2 delivery struck him out on an outside fastball, a foul tip. That's strikeout 12 for Tom Seaver. The 2-2 pitch. Struck him out. A foul tip on a sharp curve. Strikeout number 13 for Tom Seaver. So Tom Seaver, you know, he doesn't seem to have much of a problem with the Big Red Machine and their lineup. He strikes out 13 batters. Uh, so he shut out the Reds for seven innings, uh, but he allowed a game-tying home run to Pete Rose in the eighth and then a walk-off home run to Johnny Bench in the ninth. Uh, he ended up with only two runs allowed, 13 strikeouts and no walks in eight and a third innings pitch in a two to one loss, a loss in which he also drove in the only run for the Mets. So some bad luck uh, for Tom Seaver as he was the only offensive provider and he lost a game in which he only allowed two runs in eight and a third innings pitch. But the rest of the team was able to rally around that and the Mets won uh, games two and three uh, but they lost game four, leaving it up to a winner-take-all game in game five. And in that game five, uh, Tom Seaver took the ball, and he allowed two runs, only one of them being earned, in eight and a third innings pitch, and got the win in a 7-2 to victory, which sent the Mets to the World Series once again. And Seaver got the ball in game three of that World Series, and he got the ball... Uh, with the series tied and that's where he allowed two runs and eight innings pitched and struck out 12 while only walking one and he got the no decision uh, after that uh, fantastic performance while the Mets lost three to two to the athletics so now the Mets were down two one in the series and with uh, with that performance with that Game 3 World Series performance and his NLCS Game 1 performance, his 1973 postseason remains the only postseason with multiple games of 12-plus strikeouts and less than two walks. Uh, only, only guy to ever do that. Only guy to ever have that level of punch-outs and uh, walk prevention. But luckily for the Mets and Tom Seaver, the Mets won games four and five. And in game six, with an opportunity, opportunity to clinch, Seaver allowed two runs in seven innings. But unfortunately, with his luck this postseason, he got the loss in a three-to-one defeat. And the Mets ended up losing game seven and therefore losing the World Series. And throughout the postseason, Seaver pitched 31 and two-thirds innings pitch put up a 1.99 ERA, struck out 35, bo 35 batters, and only walked eight. And ultimately, his three games with seven-plus innings pitch and less than three runs allowed in games where his team lost are the most such games in a single postseason. So that's sort of a, that's sort of a stat where you need your team to uh, disappoint you. But, you know, that's the... Uh, that's the amount of excellence he had in games that 
the team lost, unfortunately for him. One of my favorite things just in the entire history of baseball is that the Mets won 83 games for three consecutive seasons, missed the playoffs in each of them. And then in 1973, they come around, win one less game than that, 82 and 79, go on to somehow win the division and then almost take down two dynasties in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They they beat the defending National League champions and they came like inches away from beating the defending World Series champions all yeah. in one all in one postseason. <laughs> The two teams that they faced in that in those playoffs ended up winning half of the World Series in that decade alone. Uh, yeah, that's correct. 72, 73, 70, 74, 75, 76. Right in a row. Yeah. And the Met, the 82 win Mets almost took both of them down. Yeah, where where Tom Seaver was maybe the only good player on that <laughs> roster. So now we move into 1974, and on May 1st. Tom Seaver pitched 12 innings, shut out, struck out 16 batters, walked two, and allowed three hits and one run in a game where, unfortunately, the Mets eventually lost. And this is the only game in the history of game logs that goes back to 1901 with 12-plus innings pitched, 16-plus strikeouts, and less than six base runners. And yes, that is still a loss, unfortunately. Um, however, lingering issue uh, injuries negatively affected uh, his performance on the field. He did end up with a 320 ERA, 291 FIP, 112 ERA plus, and 236 innings pitched. Uh, so his numbers were still very good, but he did have the injuries still lingering. He finished third in FIP. He led the league in strikeouts per nine with 7.7 and K to walk ratio with 2.7. He finished fourth in B war and ninth in F war. The Mets ended up going 71 and 91, finishing fifth in the NL East. And in September of 1974, uh, he was diagnosed with sciatic nerve problem and with a sciatic nerve problem, and he dislocated his pelvic structure. Uh, So that was a big problem for him. And then he eventually worked with a doctor who fixed the problems, which theoretically uh, helped him for the future. So Pending these injuries, we now go into 1975, where in this season, he becomes the first pitcher in baseball history to strike out 200-plus batters in eight consecutive seasons. And he finished third in innings pitched with 280 and a third, third in ERA with a 238, and third in ERA plus with a 146. He led the league in wins with 22, strikeouts with 243, and FIP with a 2-3-5, and he led the league in both B-War and F-War, got third in the Cy Young and ninth in the MVP vote, and the Mets went 82-80, and but they didn't have the same luck as two seasons before. They finished third in the National League East. Yes. Uh, the um, I, I do word it weird in the prep sheets, but didn't finish third in the Cy Young. He won his third Cy Young. Oh, he won his so- third Cy Young. He won this. He did win the Cy Young while leading the league in both B War and F War, so that gave him a, a nice a nice trio. And this caps bad. off. That's my bad. That's that caps off a in a extremely dominant run by Mister Tom Terrific, uh, particularly a five year stretch from 1971 to 1975. Uh, you know where he wins two Cy Youngs. There's an argument that he could have won three, you know, if you include 1971, where he led the league in ERA, FIP, 
uh, by a large margin, but uh, he ended up averaging a 19 and 10 record from 1971 to 1975, 271 innings pitched, 16 complete games, four shutouts, 247 strikeouts, 8.0 B war and 7.0 F war per year in this five-year stretch with a 3.4 strikeout to walk ratio, 2.43 ERA, 2.45 FIP and 144 ERA plus. And also from 1971 to 1975, he was ninth in innings pitched, fifth in wins, second in strikeouts, second in F war and first in B war. And uh, from 1971 to 1975, minimum 500 innings pitched. Seaver was second in strikeouts per nine, second in strikeout to walk ratio, first in FIP, first in ERA, and first in ERA plus. So probably definitively, uh, definitely in terms of run pre- run prevention, uh, the best pitcher of that five year stretch. And now we head into. Uh, an era where he's kind of uh, breaking away from the franchise that um, originally, originally had him. So now we go into 1976 to 77 and before the 76 season, uh, Seaver demanded a three year, $825,000 contract. And the team president was angry with Seaver's demands and threatened to trade Seaver to the Dodgers for Don Sutton. But uh, he didn't. But they didn't follow through because Seaver was a few months away from beginning a ten and five uh, player, from becoming a ten and five player, which would essentially give him the ability to reject every trade, um, because you know he's played in the league for ten years, five with the team, gives him a no trade clause, and also uh, the team thought it'd be a PR disaster to trade Seaver. Tell that to the Colorado Rockies. The Mets ended up signing Seaver to an incentive-based three-year, $675,000 deal. And although he signed it, he wasn't happy uh, that he was resorted to doing this. That was obviously not the pay that he wanted. Uh, but despite those actions, he ended up finishing third in innings pitch with 271, third in ERA with a 259, and fifth in ERA plus with a 126. He ended up leading the league in strikeouts with 235, Ks per nine with 7.8, and FIP with a 2.47. He finished fifth in B-War and led the league in F-War. He finished eighth in the Cy Young vote. And Seaver's nine seasons with 200-plus strikeouts up to this point remain the most through a pitcher's first 10 seasons in their career. And as for the Mets, they hovered above 500, again, finishing 86-76, and third in the National League East. So now... We are on to 1977, where there's some some things looming over for the Mets and Tom Seaver. And uh, it starts when, in spring training, Tom Seaver voiced his displeasure for the Mets not signing any of the 24 free agents on the market in the previous offseason. And he also saw that uh, teammates, that uh, teammate Dave Kingman's contract negotiations were not going well and Seaver openly wondered whether he should have passed up on his three-year deal and rather just gone into free agency and that's when uh, the Mets president uh, Mr. M. Donald Grant called Seaver an ingrate 
and the contentious relationship between M. Donald Grant and Seaver became well known. And the team president formed an alliance with, uh, with Daily News writer, uh, Daily News sports writer Dick Young, who would now just openly bash Tom Seaver in the paper. Uh, he wrote thing, you know, this, this uh, sports writer, Dick Young, wrote things such as, quote, Tom Tewific is a pouting, griping, morale-breaking clubhouse lawyer poisoning the team, unquote. And uh, Seaver, so that's just, that's just, you know, the surface level for the, uh, the, co- the Dick Young columns who, you know, was siding with the team president. And with Tom Seaver, after he, after Seaver put up uh, a 358 ERA through June 1st, he threw two complete game victories with one run allowed combined in what were, were evidently his final, uh, what were evidently his final two starts before the June 15th trade deadline. So before this deadline, uh, he throws two complete game victories and, you know, ups his stock and makes him makes makes the Mets probably want him a little more you know with these two complete game victories and after the second of those two complete games the Mets offered Seaver a three-year one million dollar extension that would run from 1979 to 1981 this would take care of him through his late 30s and one day before the trade deadline Seaver told the Mets GM to stop trade talks with the Reds. And it seemed that uh, Seaver was going to agree to this extension. But apparently soon after, Seaver read Dick Young's Daily News column, which said, quote, Nolan Ryan is now getting more, Nolan Ryan is getting more now than Seaver. And that galls Tom because Nancy Seaver and Ruth Ryan are very friendly. And Tom Seaver long has treated Nolan Ryan like a little brother. So Seaver felt this was a very personal attack and was a little intrusive. And Seaver, knowing that Young's columns had heavy influence from Mets team president, this was the final straw for Seaver with the Mets. And he told the Mets public relations director, quote, get me out of here. And he told the Mets GM uh, that everything Seaver said uh, the previous night regarding trade talks was forgotten. Like, you know, he mentioned that he said that, you know, stop trade talks with, with Cincinnati. We're going to get a deal done. But after this column, this is no longer the case. And in turn, after, after he called off the calling off, uh, Seaver was traded to the Cincinnati Reds for Doug Flynn, Steve Henderson, Dan Norman, and, uh, Pat, Pat Zachary, and and uh, you know, despite Seaver, despite Seaver wanting this trade, it was still hard for him to uh, sort of deal with this. As far as the fans go, I mean, I've given them a great number of thrills. I got the other 
receiver missed the fan, the fans would miss him. And the same could be said of Dave Kingman, who was also traded the same night. It was an emotional transformation, and June 15, 1977 will forever be remembered as the Midnight Massacre. Come on, George. So Tom Seaver, um, obviously a, a, emotional about his exit. It did not go the way he wanted it to go. And he probably, you know, if the relationship was good, probably wanted to be a Met for life, but he, could, he couldn't take it anymore. So now we get into the era of Tom Seaver's career where he's a respectable red. You know, he's still, he still has the skills that, made him succeed in New York, but now he's doing it in a different uniform. So in his first start with Cincinnati, uh, Seaver threw a three-hit shutout with eight strikeouts and no walks. And in 165 and a third innings pitch with the Reds in 1977, Seaver put up a 2.34 ERA, 2.87 FIP, and 168 ERA plus. And he ended up finishing fifth in the National League in innings pitched with 261 and a third, second in fifth with a 2.94, second in ERA with a 2.58, and fourth in ERA plus with a 149. And Seaver ended up leading the league in uh, shutouts with seven, hits per nine with 6.9, whip with a 1.01, and strikeout to walk ratio with a 3.0 and Seaver ended up finishing third in B war and third in F war. And uh, the writers paid close attention to these Saber metrics as they had him finish third in the Cy Young vote and uh, also 25th in the MVP vote. And the Reds went 88 and 74 and finished second in the national league West and Seaver remains the only pitcher in baseball history to have five plus baseball reference for in each of his first 11 seasons. And Seaver's 79.1 career B war up to this point remained the most by a pitcher in the live ball era through their first 11 seasons. So Seaver obviously was uh, spectacular to start off his career. One of the quickest starts to a career that we had ever seen. So now we go to 1978, his first full season uh, with Cincinnati. And on June 16th, he was looking to earn his fourth complete game of the season. Now a strike away from his first major league no hitter. The Reds leading at four to nothing in the ninth inning. Hendrick puts ahead of the bat on the plate. Werner hangs a sign. Seaver with a pause, the check and the pitch. He bounces to first base. Dreesen has it. He goes to the bag and Seaver's got it. Bob Seaver has pitched his first major league no-hitter. And this one belongs to the Reds. Seaver is being mobbed at first base as George Hendrick bounces a routine two-hopper to Danny Dreesen and the 38,216 at Riverfront Stadium are standing. Tom Seaver has thrown the first no-hitter of his major league career, the 14th no-hitter in the long history of the Cincinnati Reds, and he did it in almost routine fashion tonight, and what a ball game. 
So Tom Seaver throws his first career no-hitter. The young, at the time, Marty Brenneman on the call for that one. And on the season, Tom Seaver ended with a 288 ERA, a 3.17 FIP, and a 1.23 ERA plus in, a, in 259 and two-thirds innings pitched. This gave him sixth in innings pitched, 10th in ERA, and eighth in ERA plus. He also finished 10th in B-War and 9th in F-War. The Reds ended up going 92-69, and 69, but unfortunately, they finished second in the NL West. And to this day, Seaver remains the only pitcher in baseball history to have 170-plus strikeouts and less than 90 walks in each of their first 12 seasons. He also remains the only pitcher in baseball history to have 230-plus innings pitched and an ERA of 110 or better, and six-plus strikeouts per nine in each of their first 12 seasons, and no one else has more than eight such seasons in their first 12 seasons. So now we go to 1979, where Tom Seaver looks to close out uh, another decade. So uh, Tom Seaver, through his first 10 starts, uh, went two and five with a 5.44 ERA. So it was very uh, uncharacteristic. And in his next and final 22 starts, he went 14 and one with a 2.42 ERA in 163 and two thirds innings pitch. And his performance helped help the Reds win the National League West by one and a half games. And Seaver ended up finishing seventh in FIP with a 3.33, 10th in ERA with a 3.14, and ninth in ERA plus with a 121. And uh, this was all well. These read statistics ranked uh, in the top 10 while he, while he threw a career low. Career low, you know, this is not a big deal considering how many innings he pitched. 215 innings pitched uh, was a career low for him in his 13th season. And Seaver led the league in shutouts with five, and he ended up finishing ninth in F4, and he finished fourth in the Cy Young vote uh, and 21st in the MVP vote. So now on to the postseason uh, where the Reds belong in after winning that National League West by a game and a half. Seaver in game one of the NLCS allowed two runs in eight innings and of course got the no decision uh, well, as the Reds lost five to two to the Pirates and the Reds ended up getting swept in this series. And this was Seaver's last time pitching in the postseason. So to recap his postseason career, it was pretty excellent. Uh, he put up a career career, 2.77 postseason ERA and 3.2 strikeout to walk ratio in 61 and two thirds inning pitch. And, you know, a strikeout to walk ratio above three in the, in the seventies is a much bigger deal then than it is now. And also from his third career postseason start on, uh, he posted a 1.81 ERA and three point and a 3.8 strikeout to walk ratio in 49 and two thirds innings pitch. So he did struggle at the start, but you know, from his, in his final six postseason starts, he was on another level. So now we move into a new decade, the 1980s, and this one wouldn't be as kind 
to Tom Seaver as he had some bad luck, also some bad performances. In the 1980 season, he missed a lot of July, uh, the entire month of July, in fact, because of arm trouble. And he wasn't performing as character- characteristically well as, as we were used to. He had an ERA above five as late as August 9th. But uh, in his final eight starts, he was able to turn it around. He put up a 1.64 ERA in 66 innings pitched. He ended up that season with a 3.64 ERA, a 4.48 FIP, a 99 ERA plus in 168 innings pitched in total. So he didn't just barely qualify despite missing the month. But overall, not the best season for Seaver, and he would look to come back from that in 1981. Now, on April 18th, Seaver struck out his 3,000th batter, which garnered enough national attention to get six seconds of airtime on the MLB Network Remembers that aired uh, just a little over a month ago. Just 11 days before Carlton did it, Tom Seaver got his 3,000th career strikeout. So April 1980. There it is. Tom Seaver. Uh, that's the only known video of it that we were able to get, but we'll take it. Yeah. And on June 11th, he threw his fifth complete game, allowing two runs and striking out seven, as well as walking one to earn the win, lowering his ERA to 2.06 on the season. And this pulled the Reds within a half a game lead of the National League West. And then the next day, the players went on strike and the league did not return the regular season until August 10th, just two months later. And after getting a loss on August 12th, Seaver went seven and zero with a two, with a 2.49 ERA. So he had a dominant season in 1981, but unfortunately because of the way the league worked in a strike season, the Reds went 31 and 21 in the second half. And with their first half compiled the best record in baseball, which is great. But the way it worked was that, the best record in each division in the first half and the best record in each division in the second half of the teams that went to the playoffs, no matter what your combined record was. And the Houston Astros came out of absolutely nowhere and ended up uh, having a great second half beating the Reds. So they didn't make the playoffs, unfortunately. Seaver ended up with a 2.54 ERA, a 3.58 FIP, and 140 ERA plus in 166 and a third innings pitched. Uh, this, this team, man, like they were absolutely screwed. Like I, I wrote about this about a month or so ago. And, uh, you know, it reminded me of like when UCF football went undefeated, but they were, you know, upset over not having a chance to compete in the national championship tourney. This is, this could be worse. Yeah. I mean, like it, it's terrible also, cause it gave the first half winners no incentive to exactly compete in the second half like the Dodgers were just like running on fumes for two and a half months yeah they didn't they could just chill out for the most part you know yeah. have plenty they of planned off days the entire roster for two months yeah exactly it's it was uh real weird like pretty weird how it how it all happened yeah um that was such a that was such a weird decision that I will never understand Anyway, Tom Seaver finished fourth in innings pitched, eighth in ERA, and sixth in ERA+. plus. He led the league in wins with 14 and a winning percentage with an 875. He finished fifth in BWAR, and he finished second in the Cy Young vote along with 10th in the MVP vote. And now we're on to uh, probably Tom Seaver's worst season, 1982. Uh, he had an extremely uncharacteristic season with a 5.50 ERA, 4.50 FIP, 
and 67 ERA plus and also 11.0 hits per nine in 111 and a third innings pitch. And his final appearance of the season came on August 15th. So either an injury happened or they just did not want him uh, pitching for the remainder of the season. And in this season, the Reds went 61 and 101 for the worst record in the National League. And with the Mets looking to increase ticket sales, they traded Jason Felice, Charlie Paleo, and Lloyd McClendon for Tom Seaver. So now we head into the late stage of Tom Seaver's career where he's not, you know, winning Cy Young's or anything, but he's still producing. He's still producing at an above average level uh, throughout the rest of his career. So now he's back on the Mets in 1983. So in 1983, Tom Seaver had a bit of a resurgence. He threw his most amount of innings in a single season since 1978 with 231. This gave him 10th in the NL, and he put up a 3.55 ERA, a 3.77 FIP, and a 103 ERA+. plus. The Mets, however, went 68-94, finishing last in the NL East. And uh, because of the strike, there were some uh, unorthodox rules that were put in place that offseason. This is from Society for American Baseball Research, where they say, the resolution of the 1981 player strike established an annual pool of players from which teams could select players as uh, compensation for free agent losses. With several young prospects they were anxious to keep, the Mets did not uh, envision a team that would want Tom Seaver, who is now 39, whose value was higher in New York because of his appeal as an attendance draw. And the White Sox ended selecting ended up selecting Tom Seaver uh, through this system, which is kind of funny because Tom Seaver's Mets career began through a lottery and it is now ending through an unorthodox system. Yeah, exactly. Full circle. So now going into 1984, quite an uneventful season. He put up a 3.95 ERA, 3.94 FIP, 105 ERA plus and 236 and two thirds innings pitched. Uh, fairly good season, especially considering his age. The White Sox, however, went 74 and 88, and they finished fifth in the AL West. Oh, right. The AL, AL West. West. Yeah. I was going to say the AL Central didn't exist in 1984. That's a whoopsie. Uh, <laughs> hate, to, hate to do that to you. Uh, and, I mean, shout out to me for ca- catching that with, with it right on the paper. I could have just read that. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've given it. I've, I guess I, I guess I kind of faded out towards the end of this. That was, uh, no, that was just a test. I see that. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, you gave me that's part of the script for a reason. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And also when I said uh, NL Central for 1968. Oh, God, yeah. I didn't that was even all, on that. It was all part of the plan. I just, you know, got to keep you on your toes. Yeah. Um, but uh, as we head into the last couple years of – Tom Seaver's uh, Tom Seaver's career. Uh, 1985 is a very good season for him. And on August 4th, with a four to one lead against the Yankees, with two men on and two men out in the bottom of the ninth, Tom Seaver was looking to earn his fifth complete game of the year. This crowd is on its feet to an extent. Don Baylor will step in to pinch it for Bobby Meacham. A single by Pascal. Ran 
handoff was robbed by Bain for the second out. And then a walk to Pagliarulo, and there is uh, former President Richard Nixon on his feet in the Yankee owner's box. Weaver is ready to work now to Don Baylor, and it's a high fly ball. It should be playable. Nichols is moving over. Nichols is there. The ball game is over. Seaver has won 300. He has become the 17th man in the history of baseball to win 300 games. Seaver will turn it loose now. So a couple couple things there throughout that video. First of all, uh, shout out to Don Baylor, the last out of that of that 300th win, for being the all-time hit by pitch king before Craig Biggio took it over in 2005. Uh, second of all, shout out to uh, Mike Pagliarulo, known 1991 twin, for uh, getting a little shout out in there. Right. Yeah, Mike Pagliarulo, mm-hmm. uh, World Series champion in absolutely in 1991. Uh, yeah, I forgot how great that name was. Um, I remember how much trouble you had pronouncing it because it was it, it had a G in it. There's a silent G, yeah. Yeah. It's tough. They always, they always get you with those silent Gs. Yeah, those Italians. Uh, <laughs> Seaver, you know, after with all this, with the, with this 300th win on the 1985 season, had a very good season. A 317 ERA, 373 FIP, and 136 ERA+. plus in 283 and two-thirds innings pitch this is a this is in his uh, age 40 season he's putting up 200 238 innings pitch uh 136 era plus and siever in fact finished sixth in era and fifth in era plus and he also finished eighth in baseball reference for and it is the only season by a pitcher in their age 40 season or older with 230 plus innings pitched, an ERA plus of 130 or better, five plus strikeouts per nine, and five plus complete games. And the White Sox uh, ended up going 85 and 77 and finishing third in the AL West. Uh, I guess I got it right that time. Um, you did. Yeah, I guess it was just one one little mistake. No, you're just. I, I'm telling you, you were just testing me. Yeah, you know what? Subconsciously, subconsciously, that's exactly what I was doing. Yeah. And now on to 1986, uh, where in 12 starts with the White Sox, Seaver put up a 4.38 ERA, 4.87 FIP, and 100 ERA plus, and 72 innings pitched. And with the White Sox out of the race and Seaver wanting to be uh, closer to his home, uh, closer to his home and his family in Connecticut, uh, Seaver ended up asking to be traded to a New York or Boston team to get closer to that Connecticut family and home. And on June 29th, he was traded to the Boston Red Sox for Steve Lyons, who uh, now has a broadcasting position at the New England Sports Network. And Seaver ended up throwing 104 and a third innings pitch for the Red Sox and put up a 3.80 ERA, 3.28 FIP, and 111 ERA+. plus. So, you know, this is what uh, 
the era is all about, you know, Seaver's 41. He's still producing at an above average level, you know, not prime Seaver level, but still, uh, you know, very, very good for a 41 year old. And despite his above average ERA, uh, he had a seven and 13 record combined in 1986, which was probably a cause of him being left off of the Red Sox playoff roster. And Seaver actually looked to play for the Mets in 1987, uh, but he did not uh, he did not prove his ability to play with the defending champions. So he ended up retiring on June 22nd of 1987. So now we go into Tom Seaver's post career, and in 1992, just uh, short of a decade afterwards. He was inducted into a, into the Hall of Fame with a 98.8% of the vote. That would be the most all-time uh, in 1992, and it wouldn't be passed until around 25 years later in 2016 by none other than Ken Griffey Jr. His induction ceremony in Cooperstown attracted 10,000 people, which was also a record at the time. He was also the first Met ever inducted. He's only one of two Mets to ever be inducted currently. And from 1989 to 1993, he was a broadcaster uh, for the Yankees. And he was a broadcaster for the Mets as well from 99 up until 2005. And after spending most of his post-career in Connecticut, he eventually moved to California and established a winery with his wife, Nancy. And in March 2019, Seaver announced that he was diagnosed with dementia and the Mets renamed the address to City Field uh, to... 41 Tom Seaver way. So they honored him with his number and his name. And unfortunately on August 31st of 2020, he died from complications with uh, Louis body dementia and COVID-19. So now we're going to get into Tom Seaver's all-time ranks. He is 19th all time in innings pitched with 4,783, 18th in career wins with 311, tied for seventh in shutouts with 61, 11th in pitcher F4 with 92.7, 7th in pitcher B War with 106, and 6th in strikeouts with 36, with 3,640. He is the all-time Mets leader in innings pitched, ERA, FIP, strikeouts, wins, B War, and F4. And now we get into the Tom Seaver edition of and uh, now we get into what made his career so special, you know, kind of a, a dedication to him. You know, we know that his death was relatively recent, but it's kind of a celebration of Mr. Tom Seaver. So Seaver has the lowest career whip of anyone with 4,000 plus innings pitch in the live ball era with a 1.12 career whip. And his Seven seasons with five plus shutouts are the most such seasons in the live ball era. Seaver also had nine seasons with 250 plus innings pitched, less than 7.5 hits per nine, and less than three walks per nine. No one else in the live ball era has more than five such seasons. And Seaver had nine of those. And Seaver's 76 career games, nine plus innings pitched, eight plus strikeouts, and less than three walks are the most such career games by a pitcher 
history of game logs. And Seavers, six seasons with 250 plus innings pitched, six plus yards per nine, and an ERA plus of 140 or better, are the most such seasons in baseball history. Seaver also had 10 seasons with 250 plus innings pitched, six strikeouts per nine, and a whip of less than 1.2. No one else in baseball history has had more than seven such seasons. Seaver also had 11 seasons with 250 plus pitch, six plus strikeouts per nine, and an ERA of less than three. No one else in baseball history has had more than seven such seasons. And Seaver is also the only pitcher in baseball history with 4,500 plus hits, less than 4,000 hits allowed, and less than 1,500 walks. You mean uh, 45,000 innings pitched there? Sounded like, you sounded like you said 45,000 hits. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just redo that. <laughs> and he's the only pitcher in baseball history with 4,500 plus pitched, less than 4,000 hits allowed, and less than 1,500 walks. And Seaver is the only pitcher in baseball history with 4,000 plus innings pitch, less than 7.48 hits per nine, and less than three walks per nine. And the last one we'll get to, uh, perhaps the more the most impressive one, Seaver is the only pitcher in baseball history with 3,600 plus strikeouts and an ERA of less than three. So that is all the how about that's we have for this part of the episode. And now we go on to his legacy, Tom Seaver's legacy. Um, you know, what I, what I saw is Tom Seaver did not need time to develop as a pitcher. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the pitchers we cover usually have some struggles at the beginning. You know, they sort of formulate maybe three, four, five years into their career. And, you know, then they're the pitcher that, they were meant to be Tom Seaver was, you know, excellent from the start. You know, we talk about all those, you know, how about that's within, you know, of anyone in their first season of anyone in their first two seasons, he was the only pitcher to, to do this, you know, that's very meaningful. And it's, you know, impressive. He was able to not only do that, uh, you know, at such a, young at such a young age he was able to do that for a very long time as well unlike you know examples would be of Vita Blue, Dwight Gooden, guys who broke out early but didn't necessarily continue it. Tom Seaver broke out early and continued it and also and yeah it makes sense uh there's a quote from him being in the minor leagues there was a quote saying that like he has a 35 year old head and a 21 year old body and he, from his performance his his ability to uh come out and be a great pitcher from the start uh, it kind of says that it kind of says that for you and also siever was excellent in every aspect of pitching uh, he ate up innings he was able to get plenty of strikeouts all the league in strikeouts uh 
five times. He led the league in ERA and ERA plus plenty of times, led the league in FIP plenty of times, spread gap to walk ratio plenty of times, hits per, he led the league in hits per nine, lowest amount of hits per nine plenty of times. You know, he was a very com- complete pitcher and, you know, could be an argument for the most complete pitcher of all time, especially, you know, relative to the time, you know, because his career strikeouts per nine was 6.8. But, you know, when you consider he pitched in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that's actually quite a bit. Um, and also, what what should be very noted, or what should be very notable with Tom Seaver is in a sea of great starting pitchers in the, in the 1970s. You know, some we've, we've covered on here, you know, Fergie Jenkins, Steve Carlton, uh, some more would include, you know, uh, Bob Gibson, Maybe maybe a little uh, before his time, but also you know Burt Blylevin, uh, Phil Necro, Don Sutton, uh, plenty plenty of pitchers in you know that nineteen late sixties nineteen seventies era. Tom Seaver is still able to come out as the best, even when starting pitching was you know at its peak. He was still able to come out on top as you know, pretty clearly. Uh, the best to do it in that era, you know, in terms of, you know, ERA, strikeouts, eating innings, uh, the combination made him uh, the best to do it in that era. And uh, lastly, what I'll say about Tom Seaver, he is the face of New York Mets history. Uh, you know, when you think of, when you think of Mets history, you have to think of Tom Seaver. He's definitely the greatest man of all time. He came in, you know, while the Mets were only in their sixth sixth season, and his legacy lives on for a very good. He was, you know, the best to do it for for their franchise, and uh, you know, they they haven't seen many like him in that organization. Yeah, you know, I mean, kind of going off of that last point, Tom Seaver put the Mets on the map. Uh, you know, that was a franchise that came from nothing sort of, you know, I'm sure when they were incepted uh, during their inception in 1962, I'm sure a lot of New York baseball fans were still bitter about losing the Dodgers, losing the giants, where, you know, it was just the Yankees running the town for a few years, the Mets come in. And, you know, like we mentioned in our interview with Marty, you know, up until 1969, they hadn't, uh, they hadn't finished above last place except for that one season beforehand where they finished ninth. So Tom Seaver came in, he was the first thing, that Mets fans really had to be excited about for the long-term future. And, you know, he brought them in, won a Cy Young in a miracle season. And, you know, kind of to back the whole point up, he was the reason the Mets were ever relevant to begin with. He was the first great Met and he put them on the map. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. He did put them on the map and yeah, they wouldn't on the, they wouldn't have won the division in 69 without him. They probably never make it to, a world series before the eighties, uh, if not for him, I mean, he made them, he was a big part in making them a respectable franchise rather than what was previously a pretty much a joke of a yeah, franchise. I mean, he was, he was the relevance that they had. Yeah, he was, he was it. He, you know, his first season was when he came in, he had the best Mets season ever and in his first ever season and it was the Mets' sixth season. Uh, and he was, you know, he was 22 at the time, which is pretty crazy to think about. Um, so, yeah, I guess that does it for 
Tom Seaver, it was a, it was a long one, you know, we gave you, we gave you a lot of content for this one. We hope you enjoyed all of that ride. And if you would like to uh, watch the videos with us, if you're listening on Apple podcast or Spotify and want to watch those videos with us, go to our YouTube channel and subscribe to the YouTube channel. It is called above replacement radio. Uh, if you want to follow us on so- social media, follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Gianta and follow Daniel on both Twitter and Instagram at Daniel underscore Curran. And also follow the show Instagram at Above Replacement Radio. And lastly, we'd, we would also like to thank Stathead, Baseball Reference, Fangraphs, and Society for American Baseball Research. And also MLB on YouTube for all the information and content that we needed for this episode. So we hope you enjoyed the Tom Seaver part of the episode, and we hope to see you tomorrow where we are going to be talking about the 2007 Colorado Rockies. See you then.